welcome to the Future of Field Service podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Nicastro. Today, we are going to be talking with Tetra Pak and discussing their view on sustainability, um, both internally and uh, in the services potential that it provides the company. Um, super interesting conversation and uh, thrilled to be joined today by Jason Pels, who is the Vice President of Sustainability uh, at Tetra Pak in the Americas, and Sasha Elyukin, who is the Vice President of Services Solutions for the Americas at Tetra Pak. It's a mouthful, gentlemen, but welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Um, so before we get into the meat of the conversation, um, let's just go through some intros. So Jason, um, can you start and just uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your background, your role, whatever you want to share? Sure. Um, so as you all now know, I'm Jason Peltz. I'm the VP of Sustainability for Tetra Pak Americas. Uh, my background, actually, I grew up in a family that had a recycling collection, sorting and bailing corporation. So I've been around part of the space for a long time, and I worked for a few companies. And since I've been at Tetra Pak, myself and my team have really been uh, out fighting the good fight for Tetra Pak, pushing our sustainability agenda, uh, most recently across the Americas. Very cool. It's really interesting you have a, a background in, in all of this. I didn't know that part. Um, good. Yeah, you okay. can never leave it. What's that? You can't seem to leave it. It always sticks with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, Sasha. Um, Sasha, you've actually been on the podcast before. I didn't look and see what episode it was, but it's been a while. So um, I don't go remember ahead the and, number either. Yeah, but go that's ahead okay. and tell uh, folks about yourself. Absolutely. So, uh, so my name is Sasha Lukin. I'm uh, VP of Services Solutions for Tetra Pak Americas. Uh, my background is I, I am from Russia, so I was born in Russia, uh, and then I came to the U.S. Uh, to study and then ended up uh, starting my uh, work uh, adventures uh, here in the U.S. Um, so I'm in the food industry for more than 20 years. Most of that time is with Tetra Pak uh, in variety of uh, different roles uh, and in the U.S. and then Europe as well. And um, I am uh, also... Um, responsible for uh, for the services solutions. So I've always, you know, my entire career has been in services and customer services. And uh, I'm currently leading the team uh, that is uh, growing the business of uh, services solutions for our customers. And sustainability is a, is a pretty big theme these days. So uh, we're, uh, we're doing some interesting work with sustainability and services. Awesome. Okay. And so this is going to be sort of uh, in some ways, a two-part conversation, right? Because we're going to talk with Jason a bit about some of uh, Tetra Pak's sustainability initiatives um, and uh, objectives, and then um, talk with Sasha about, you know, how that translates into potential for the services business. I feel like I've said this on a string of podcasts lately, but I do have kitchen renovations underway. So if you guys hear any crazy noises in the background, I apologize and just bear with me. Um, okay. So Jason, I'm going to start with you. Um, so, you know, maybe give folks uh, a little bit of context on, um, you know, I guess the Tetra Pak business, but specifically how the company has 
gotten to the point of being seen as really a leader when it comes to sustainability um, and, you know, sort of the passion the company has around, you know, really focusing on that leadership position and, you know, being as involved as it is in its own sustainability initiatives and also encouraging um, its partners and its customers and, you know, the world to focus more on this area as well. Um, that's a very broad way to start, but I'll give it a shot. Uh, I, I think the most important thing to say is this, it's not new for us. Sustainability has really been part of Tetra Pak's DNA since Dr. Rousing started the company. You know, he said, a package should save more than it costs. And I think when you immediately do that, you've already got in mind something tied to sustainability. Um, you know, as I said, you've gone in a bunch of different directions, but really since our beginning, if you think about the package we created, an aseptic package, which allows for products to be safely held within a package, not needing refrigeration, um, long shelf life, you're talking about things like not needing electricity, not needing, not needing excuse me, refrigeration, um, food waste can be minimized, things like that. So again, to go back, for, for Tetra Pak, it's been a journey. This hasn't been something that is new in five or 10 years. It's really been since the beginning. Um, the company, I, I would say, has because of that initial DNA, I would say, we've always looked at things that we need to be out there driving and pushing the envelope to make things better. So whether it is in our processing solutions, how can we have more efficient equipment in our packaging? How do we make a more sustainable package? How do we better protect food? Um, how at our own factories, at our own um, uh, sites, what can we do to, to reduce the footprint we have on society, on, the local environment. Um, I could talk for an hour on this one thing. You know, we look at things from a holistic standpoint. So every part of what we do contributes in the end to how we want to make sure that as a leader, we have the least footprint on the environment as possible, yet at the same time, be able to provide people with an exceptional package that can handle these products. Uh, if I go into certain details, for example, we've made commitments in 2010, we, we set a goal to cap our, um, our CO2 emissions at 2010 levels at the time we reached 2020. And not only did we cap them, we reduced emissions by 19% and we grew our packaging by 16%. So, so there's something to be proud of on what we achieved. You know, we've made other commitments. We've, we, we engage in, and do things based on the sustainable development goals set by the UN. Um, Again, Sarah, I could go on for a long time about all this stuff, but really what maybe is the best thing to say is because it's so much part of our culture and because it is so much ingrained in, in what we're trying to do, not that it's easy to accomplish, but, but the company believes in it and therefore we're given this power to move forward. And, and that's why we're doing so many of these things. Yeah. So Jason, one of the words you said, holistic, I really liked because that was, you know, one thing that struck me when we talked in preparation for this discussion is, and it's both because of how Tetra Pak's business is structured, right? Like you have the packaging itself, you have the packaging equipment, you have the services function, right? Like there are these different areas of this, um, life cycle that you touch. And, but, but I think it's also in the culture, right. To not overlook opportunities 
of impact. So the, the word holistic, I think, is a really good adjective for the way it seems Tetra Pak approaches its sustainability objectives, because you're looking you know, across the business, across those different areas of impact, not having a narrow view on, okay, let's just pick more, you know, uh, sustainable materials for our packaging, right? Like that would be maybe a more obvious aspect to focus on, but there's all these other components um, that, that you all are working on as well to really you know, drive the most positive change that you can. Um, so I think holistic is a, a super good word for that. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, your sustainability mission statement is broken down into sort of three pillars. Um, can you talk a little bit about why it's structured that way and what those three areas are? Yeah. So, you know, we, we basically the, the, um, our brand promise is to protect what's good. And then if you take that a step further and you look at the three, the, what you're talking about, you've got food, people, and planet. You know, so what we want to do is when it comes to the food, we want to make sure um, that we protect and make food available everywhere to anyone. Um, so, so to us, that is part of our mission. And from a sustainability standpoint, that is key. You need to feed a growing population. And we believe that we have a a great way in our whole process, processing technical services, the filling equipment and the packaging to do that. Um, when it comes to the people, you know, it's it's for us, it's our people who obviously a Tetra Pak that we wanna protect, um, but it's also the communities that we work in. You know, we wanna make sure that we're good stewards to the communities that we work in. Um, and then it's to the greater world. You know, again, I talked about food safety and food availability. We want to make sure we do that. You know, we take diversity and inclusion very seriously. We want to have a very well-structured and open environment at our um, company, again, which is all key to making sure holistically we're driving sustainability. And then finally, when it comes to planet, you know, this is the buzzword of all, which is the environment. You know, everybody is very in tune to the environment. And for us, you know, we want to have the most, um, the best, most uh, the, the best, least, sorry, impactful packaging material. We want to use the least amount of energy, the least amount of water. We want to work with our customers to allow them to do the exact same thing. We want to reduce our carbon footprint across the value chain. Um, and, and that gets us involved in a lot of different things. You know, we're very involved, for example, in the recycling value chain because we need to be there. That's part of what contributes to it. But we also take very seriously how we source our materials because you can have a very recyclable package, but if it all comes from fossil-based materials, you're not looking at things, you're not taking the planet into consideration. And so this is why for us, um, we do it. And by breaking it into those three areas, it allows for good focus um, as we drive our mission forward. That makes sense. Sasha, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about, um, you know, how people typically view the sustainability life cycle. And so, you know, as I just mentioned, one of the things that struck me when we spoke about this topic is sort of the, um, the attention to de detail, you know, in terms of Tetra Pak looking at all of the areas where it can improve sustainability and making sure that things 
you know, don't, don't get missed. Right. And the description you gave of sort of, you know, here's some of the top of mind areas that people commonly default to thinking about, which are important, but here's some of maybe the less considered areas uh, to address, um, which, you know, relates into the services conversation we'll get to, but I think it also would be a good um, point now to touch on so people can sort of visualize what we talk about when we say holistic. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's a very, very good word that uh, Jason had used as well, um, and, and I like it. Um, you know, all of the value chains are becoming circular, right? Um, so, you know, uh, people are looking for products um, as consumers that are circular products. So you buy something, you consume parts of it, and whatever is left kind of enters the value chain in one shape or form, and then it, it just makes that full circle. So if you look at that circular um, value chain, then sourcing becomes extremely important and recycling becomes extremely important. Jason mentioned those two things. And I would argue that, you know, if you just go out in the street and, you know, stop first 20 people and you ask them, you know, what is the most important part of the, of the value chain? Um, that's what they would most likely say, right? Uh, they would say that it's important to them where the product is coming from, that it's actually sourced properly. And how is that product then recycled? What happens to it at the end of life? So it doesn't just go into the landfill um, and, and just uh, you know, pollute the planet. What is interesting about this is that there is one piece in the middle there in that circular value chain that is called manufacturing. And so, so you source the materials, you start putting them together. That typically happens in a manufacturing plant. Uh, then, you know, there, there, there may be multiple manufacturing, um, you know, uh, nodes, if you will, on that, on that value chain, because then, you know, it goes further. So like we manufacture, for example, equipment, we manufacture packaging material. Our customers manufacture consumer products using what we had manufactured previously. So if you take that, that whole manufacturing piece, our data suggests that it's, you know, that the whole impact on the, on the sort of this carbon footprint of the entire value chain, 48% of that uh, footprint is actually caused by manufacturing, right? So you think about, you know, again, sourcing, extremely important, recycling is extremely important, but half of this entire impact comes from manufacturing. And for many people, uh, for good reasons, uh, manufacturing is kind of a black box, right? I mean, you as a consumer, you have no idea how, you know, different products are made. Um, yeah, there's this, this how it's made series on TV. That, that's great. I love to see it as an engineer. But for most people, it's kind of a black box. That black box is extremely important. I think it's gaining a lot of relevance. And we can talk about it when we talk about services we can talk about how services can actually impact what's happening within that box to, to reduce the footprint. Okay, perfect. So yeah, Sarah, go ahead, Jason. Can I just add something what Sasha said, which is super important, and that's where we've made some of our commitments. You know, we've committed to be part of the, the Renewable Energy 100, which is by 2030, we want to have 100% of our infrastructure supplied by renewable energy. And, you know, so we've made investments. We're, we're not just talking, we're walking the talk. We've put solar arrays, we're buying, you know, credits, we're buying green energy where we can, because Sasha's got a great point. If we don't 
start working on that manufacturing base to make sure that we reduce the impact it makes and even take it a step further. And even with our suppliers, how do we work with them? Because again, we have to look at the whole scope. Um, it's true that black box becomes a big piece of the puzzle. And if that 48% can get reduced, it makes a big deal. Absolutely. And you actually, that was a perfect segue into the next question I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, so there is more and more and more conversation around sustainability, which is a great thing, right? It's, it's something that um, should be being discussed for sure, but acted upon, right? And so the point you made around, we're not just talking, we're doing, right, uh, is, is super important because, you know, the reality is as these things become top of mind for people and reach sort of a, a buzzword status, then you have a lot of people that jump on and say, oh yes, we're also focusing on sustainability, right? And, and so what the actual, um, efforts are and what impact they're having is, you know, super, super important. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, how do you create accountability around making real progress on the, the goals that you're setting as an organization? Um, what we do, you know, we have reporting, you know, there's governance. So you have reporting mechanisms, you know, we, we report through SEDEX, we're part of ECOVADIS. When it comes to our sourcing, for example, we have certifications for some of our, uh, for our renewable um, sourcing, be it FSC certification. We have uh, bone sucrose certification for our, our bio-based or plant-based, sorry, polyethylene. Um, we're part of the aluminum uh, stewardship initiative, which even though aluminum is not necessarily a renewable resource, there's still a right way to source it. So we do engage with a number of those things. We've signed on to the UN Global Compact. And, and so these are ways that we've kind of done it. Our, our targets are, are verified by science-based targets. So we make sure that we're very transparent and we have these um, ways to show the people that we're not just saying it, we're doing it. And these are well-respected certifications. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's... And it's a commitment, you know, it's a commitment with time and people and cost, you know, this isn't free to do this stuff. And these are all the things that we do to take into consideration um, and how we've driven it and continue to drive it. Yeah, no, that's good. And I just think that's such an important part of this topic, right, is how do you you know, make sure that the areas you're focusing on are um, having a real impact and, and that you're, you know, doing enough, right? I mean, every bit helps, but, you know, just going back to the conversation about, you know, if you think only about sourcing and recycling, there's this chunk of half in the middle that never gets addressed. So just thinking about, you know, how to make sure you're looking at all of the areas you could have an impact and, and keeping yourself accountable for making progress. Um, is, is really important. All right, Jason, last question for you before we, we talk a bit about services is um, what lessons have you learned or what, you know, advice do you have related to, you know, driving uh, this topic forward and, and making real significant progress um, as it relates to sustainability? Um. You have to have a couple of things. You have to have 
your company's got to be committed. And when I say committed, it's got to be top down, bottom up. One layer in the company can't drive it. And then you can't expect everybody else to, to just be there. No one can be a spectator. That's a good way to put it. You know, everybody's got to be engaged. Doesn't matter from the CEO down to the, you know, the person uh, working in the plant every day. Everybody's got to understand it and everybody has to drive it because really it's, it's, if, if your company believes in it, I think that's key. You got to be willing to spend some money. It's not free. You know, it's going to cost money. The returns will probably not be immediate in some cases, um, but long-term they, they will definitely be a benefit. Uh, and I think the final thing that, you know, I've, I've learned through this and I think we as a company have learned is you can't do it alone. Like there's no one group that's big enough or, or one company I believe that is big enough that can make this happen on their own. I think it's, you got to have partners and, and it can be interesting partners. It can be your competition. It can be whomever, um, but you've got to be willing to work with others for two reasons. One, it's important for knowledge to be shared both directions, whether you to them or them back. Secondly, pe people think of stuff that you might not have or your company might not have. So you can't assume you know it all. And, and by having these partners and whatever it is, and we've done, I think, a great job more recently in doing so, um, if someone's better, you know, bring them along, have them help. Don't look at it as a challenge. Look at it as something to take advantage of and work together to create something better. That's what I would say. Yeah, those are really, really good points. Um, good. Okay. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about services. Um, so Sasha, I want to talk about your perspective around how sustainability is going to become a bigger driver for um, services businesses overall, but specifically uh, a Tetra Pak service business. I guess before you comment on that, um, you know, for folks that didn't listen to your first podcast, maybe just speak a little bit about sort of the types of services that you provide um, and, you uh, you know, how that shift toward um, sustainability as a driver is is taking place. Yeah, so wow, what, what an introduction. Um, let, me, let, let me start first with a little bit of a story and then I will talk about the portfolio and kind of where, where we go with this, right? Um, so the story goes like this. Um, I, I recently um, booked a, a business trip. So, so yay, we're starting to travel again, right? After over a year of, uh, you know, these lockdowns. So I'm, I, I, I want to go and, and see my customers face to face. So I've started to book uh, some business trips and, and an interesting bit of information I see in our travel booking software is that I see carbon footprint. So all of us, you know, when I look at like flights, I'm choosing flights, Okay, and okay, this flight is this many kilos of CO2, and this flight is this many kilos of CO2. And, um, you know, if I look at the price of the flights, okay, I, you know, I, I could choose a flight that's, let's say, you know, $200 less, for example, but now I see that, well, wait a second, it's 500 kilos more uh, when I choose that flight, right? So all of a sudden, you know, I am as a, well, business consumer in that case, I'm, I'm kind of thinking about, I'm making a conscious decision you know, what, how should I focus and, and what should I focus on? Right. And, um, you know, we have a commitment 
to um, to reduce uh, carbon footprint across the value chain and and you know within Tetra Pak as well. So all of a sudden, I'm paying attention to these things. Uh, this actually very very much applies to uh, just us as regular consumers. So a lot of our customers, or many of our customers, I should say, are starting to put carbon footprint on their package. Oatly is a great example. So Oatly, you know, all of their packages, you take any package from Oatly, there is a, um, a, a figure on it. And I know that they're, they're working hard on reducing that figure across the board. So, so that's a good example. And it's not only Oatly, but there are many other customers that are starting to put, uh, uh, put, put their car carbon footprint on the package. So again, it, it becomes very relevant for consumers. It becomes very relevant for customers. Uh, and of course, it, it, it is very relevant to, to us um, as well. And I think it, it, at the end of the day, from a business point of view, it also becomes a competitive advantage. Okay, If I'm as a consumer starting to choose, you know, which package do I buy? Okay, Or which ticket do I book? Uh, which, with which airline, et cetera, et cetera. All of a sudden, you know, that's a, you know, that drives my decision Okay, at, at my purchase decision. And, and that, of course, is has a, a big impact on the business if you, you know, kind of accumulate that across the, the consumer base. So um, what and, and now so let me just kind of digress a little bit and talk about the, the portfolio and kind of where we're coming from, right, as a company and, and, and these two trend, you know, uh, lines will meet together. So so we as a company, I mean, in services, we started very traditional. If, if you've uh, watched the, the previous podcast, Sarah and I, um, uh, we, we talked about this at length, but we started with a traditional portfolio, kind of parts, maintenance, after sales, if you will, et cetera. And then over time, uh, we started to introduce outcome-based solutions, um, well, service contracts, maintenance contracts, and then outcome-based solutions solutions that are focused on cost reductions, on uh, improving, improving efficiencies, uh, and uh, some you know, hard commitments, for example, on uh, operational costs, et cetera, share of savings, and these types of contracts. Uh, and um, what we see lately is there's also a clear need from our customers uh, in uh, improving sustainability as well, right? Because Jason said it, I mean, you cannot do it alone. And it's the whole value chain that we talked about earlier that needs to work on it. So all of our customers are setting their science-based targets on you know, their reductions and, and their commitments to, to the environment. We do the same. So how do we work together? Okay, We work together by uh, basically aligning our services portfolio into what it can do um, to help our customers reduce their carbon footprint, to enable them to be more competitive versus other uh, producers out there. And uh, this is our commitment to, uh, to our customers uh, on that as well, on sustainability. So this is kind of how it all kind of comes around and, and this is where services play a big role, but from a services organization perspective, then we need to think about, okay, so what are the competencies that we need for this? Um, how can we do this? Because this is not just, claiming, you know, and, and proclaiming. I mean, we need to actually prove, we need to put the numbers, we need to calculate, we need to make sure that the numbers are audited, they're confirmed, and, uh, and, and that we are really reducing the, the impact across the value chain. Okay, so I want to go back to the value chain part, but 
-hmm. What was interesting to me about the story you shared about um, your flight and Mm -hmm. and kind of looking at that criteria and then um, talking about how some of your customers have started to publicly state uh, their statistics on their packaging, Mm -hmm. you know, it just made me think like we have this whole um, point about accountability, right? Mm -hmm. And, And so that public declaration of here's where we are and you can watch and see if we're making progress, right? Is, mm-hmm. is them forcing accountability on themselves, right? To continue prioritizing this as an objective. And I think that to your point, that is a competitive advantage. It will become increasingly so. But what's interesting Absolutely. to me and what sort of helps paint the picture of the opportunity you see is So some customers are doing that now. It's going to be more and more and more, right? And so they will be creating their own accountability and forcing their own increased actions to have this this impact, right? And so, you know, that's where um, you're seeing this as a a growing driver of, uh, of services. So I guess going back to the value chain, Mm-hmm. you know, um, point and the sort of manufacturing part that sits in the middle that makes up for roughly half of, of the mm-hmm. opportunity here. Talk a little bit about some of the ways that that can be addressed um, and some of the areas there to chat to tackle from a services standpoint to really provide value to your customers. Yeah. Um, so we, we are learning. I mean, I, 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 I'm not going to claim that we know everything here on, on how to approach this, right? So, so we're also on a learning journey. But uh, what we've learned so far is what I can share uh, is that um, w- when we do the, the cost reduction projects uh, with our customers, when we help our customers reduce their operational cost, um, we do it through total productive maintenance, okay? So we use the methodology of TPM, total productive maintenance. And uh, that typically starts with doing things like mass balance of the plant and what is called activity-based costing, right? Uh, I mean, this may be a, a, a too specific of a term, but uh, you know, we, we call it ABC. Uh, so activity-based costing, where you basically slice and dice everything that's happening in the manufacturing facility uh, on the vector of time and at the same, you know, and on the vector of um, the phase of production to see you know, what activities are actually happening, how much cost they generate, and where are the opportunities to actually reduce that cost, okay? So, so this is how we uh, sort of uh, map, map it out and, and, and start to approach it. Um, with sustainability, it's a, it's a very, very similar process. So we've learned how to do a mass balance, but using the, the energy, using the water consumption, using the BODs, CODs, uh, using the waste. Um, so, so we are doing uh, a different type of mass balance, uh, but it is anyhow a mass balance of energy, if you will. Energy that is, uh, is, is, is a carbon equivalent of, of mass balance, okay? And then we approach it in a similar way with total productive maintenance. So we basically set up uh, focused improvement teams. We set up pillars with uh, our customers, you know, with a typical sort of uh, lean manufacturing uh, TPM where you, you look at, you know, autonomous maintenance, you look at preventive maintenance, 
Uh, you look at education training, early equipment management, et cetera. So, so you, you have these, uh, these pillars and you have the, the, the uh, standard you know, 16 losses in manufacturing. We'll look at that. But we look at it also from the standpoint of how they impact the carbon footprint of the facility, okay? And to give you some examples, so uh, recently uh, we've, we've uh, managed to reduce, and one of our customers, uh, over a thousand tons of CO2 per year, okay? So this is a confirmed equivalent that we have reduced, okay? If you convert that to back to the efficiency of the plant, so overall equipment effectiveness, that increase is 19.4%. So 19.4% efficient, efficiency increase plant-wide is equivalent in that case to about, uh, you know, over just over a thousand uh, tons of CO2, okay? If you convert that to yet another equivalent of like, okay, so what does that even mean? That means that you need about 1,500 acres of forests to sequester that CO2 out of the atmosphere, okay? So just to put it in kind of common, uh, common terms. How is that done, okay? So about 40% of that actually came from standardization across the plant. And, and the specialists out there, the black belts and the green belts, I mean, they will immediately understand what we're doing. So we're, what, what we're starting with is, is we're just central lining everything, okay? So we are bringing equipment to basic conditions. We're making sure that everything is serviced properly, that it's properly, you know, sort of maintained, managed, uh, et cetera, right? And so, so everything runs properly in that facility. That itself br brought about 40% of that improvement, okay, over the year. And then another, for example, another big chunk was cleaning, okay? So when we looked at cleaning, not only the, the, the cleaning cycles themselves, but it has to do a lot with how the production is planned, for example, all of the production cycles. So we analyze all of that, okay? So we have this, uh, what is called minimum economic quantity. We look at balancing supply and demand. It's, it's a lot of very tedious work, okay? So it's not, it's not just, you know, you, you come with, you know, a, a very quick method, et cetera. No, it takes weeks and weeks and weeks, but we balance supply and demand of that manufacturing facility that drives the, uh, you know, the proper cleaning routines, for example, and proper downtime for cleaning, that in itself gives around 30% of that overall annual um, carbon uh, footprint reduction, for example. But there, there are some other things, of course, that we've done. Okay. Um, okay. So uh, I got really um, wrapped up in, in the example and forgot where, <laughs> where my next question is going to come from. So, all right. So there's all of these ways that all of these specific detailed ways that, that you can go in and really examine, okay, in the same way you would if you were driving efficiency, right? So if the mm -hmm. whole goal was to increase efficiency to reduce costs, in this instance, you're talking about really examining processes and increasing efficiency to lower um, mm -hmm. carbon footprint, right? So same concept that you are accustomed to using just different metrics by which you're, you're, you know, uh, operating. Um, mm -hmm. and, and you can go in and look for all of these areas of, of opportunity. Now we had talked previously about the fact that 
this is maybe a different way to approach this than some may initially think of when they think about, okay, how do we have a more sustainable manufacturing facility? And maybe the first thought is let's get more energy efficient equipment. Okay. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. that can be cost prohibitive. Right. And so talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about why that's not a bad goal to have, but it might Mm -hmm. not be immediately feasible for everyone that thinks that that could be a good option. And so this process of examining the current, uh, you know, operating conditions and structure and looking to make these improvements can be an option to um, make an immediate impact and, you know, maybe put yourself in a position where new equipment becomes a more reasonable option to invest in. Yeah. Um, well, what, what can I say? I mean, we also manufacture equipment, right? Uh, and um, we'd love to sell more equipment because our new equipment is awesome. I mean, from, from the sustainability standpoint, uh, you know, our packaging lines, for example, use 40% less energy um, than, than our previous generation packaging line. So, you know, if you talk to any equipment manufacturer, any OEM, um, of course, you know, they, they would tell you that, yeah, absolutely. You know, just go and change, change out the equipment and, and this will, will help reduce the, the carbon footprint. And that's true. The, the tricky part with that is, of course, uh, you know, budgets and CapEx in general. Uh, there's not a lot of appetite for CapEx out there. Uh, in fact, I see even from the services point of view, you know, more and more drive towards OPEX. So uh, even with the big brands, what, what's happening is they're saying, we don't want to, um, to, fo- to focus on the manufacturing assets anymore, okay? So a lot of it goes into contract manufacturing or co-packing uh, and, um, uh, and, and the brands then focus on, on their brand, right? On, on developing the, the, the products and what's inside the package and, and the ingredients and you know, recipes and all this great stuff, right? And marketing and, and so on. But uh, manufacturing still becomes relevant. So, you know, all of a sudden you have these, these co-packers and contract manufacturers that are getting bigger. Um, they are, of course, typically a mix of, you know, old equipment, new equipment. Uh, and so what do you do? I mean, if you're a contract manufacturer or if you're a, a traditional manufacturer, okay, with, with capital equipment, what do you do? You can't go out and just start changing all equipment in, in, in your facility. I mean, that's, that's completely unrealistic. Um, so my advice to that is, is there is just such an enormous potential in total productive maintenance in that case, okay? And uh, so, so please look into, you know, um, uh, you know sort of fine-tuning, calibrating um, your, your equipment and, and looking at, at where the costs are, driving the costs out um, in a typical manufacturing facility. The in food manufacturing, okay, I'm speaking food manufacturing now. The average util, total utilization of the equipment, if you take, take total capacity utilization, is somewhere between 30 and 40 percent. Okay, so equipment, you've got that capex out there, it's only producing products 30 or 40 percent of the time. Is that an opportunity? Absolutely, absolutely, it is an opportunity. Okay, um, the you know, and, and when it's producing. Uh, it's typically producing with some losses, some quality losses. Um, you know, a lot of food manufacturers 
you know, the way that they risk manage, for example, is that there's a lot of quality sampling. You know, I've seen up to 2% quality sampling, which is, in my opinion, a pretty crazy figure, statistically speaking. Uh, and uh, so, so there, there are a lot of different ways to, um, to, to drive efficiency and therefore reduce carbon footprint without changing the, the capital equipment. Yeah, it makes sense. And I mean, certainly it's not to say that new capital equipment isn't great when it becomes uh, a reasonable um, option to invest mm -hmm. in, right? But in the meantime, there are um, all of these other things that can be done to you know, have, have a, a more immediate impact. Um, one of the, the comments that we talked about is the fact that sustainability is just good business. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so talk a little bit about what that that quote means to you. Yeah, I think it's it's becoming more and more the license to operate, in my opinion, the license to stay in business, not only good business. It used to be good business. OK, so it used to be like, you know, you are in, in business. And if you also care about the planet and if you do some things for sustainability, you're doing good business. OK. And that's true, but I don't think it's 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 uh, any longer relevant, right? I think that it it becomes mandatory. It becomes licensed to operate for businesses to define um, how they impact sustainability. What are they doing to impact sustainability? And you know, people can argue for you know, days and days about, you know, for example, you know, how humans are impacting climate change and whatnot. I mean, there's these huge arguments about this, but what, what is, there's no argument to like, we as kind of stewards to this planet, right? I mean, it's, it's just good stewardship. And to me, it's, it, it makes absolute sense that uh, businesses are starting to, to, to kind of pay more and more um, uh, attention and put more and more effort into, into sustainability goals. It's not the bottom of the balance scorecard anymore. It kind of, it, it goes to the top of the balance scorecard. And I have examples in our business where, you know, in, in talks with, with uh, our customers that some customers are starting to place these goals as equivalent to their business goals. Okay. So, so they not only want to achieve uh, their, you know, net sales and profitability, they also want to achieve their goals on, um, um, you know, carbon reduction um, and uh, being carbon neutral and things of that nature. So absolutely, it is a license to operate. Yeah, I was having a conversation um, not long ago with uh, Dr. Andrea Schroeder from the Advanced Services Group um, at Aston Business School. And you know, we were talking about the intersection between servitization and sustainability. And, you know, it was um, a similar reflection from him that the businesses they work with on their servitization, servitization journeys, sustainability historically has been sort of a secondary focus, right? So mm -hmm. there was always a primary focus and that would be sort of a and we, if where and when we can, we'd also like to positively impact this. And you know, his point is, it's it's very quickly, um, you know, picking up steam and being the primary driver, not a secondary objective. Um, so I think that's very much in line with 
what you're seeing in terms of those priorities becoming more level versus, you know, it being further down the, the scorecard. Um, okay, so I want to ask you both uh, one final question um, for today, which is, you know, what, I guess, if you had to kind of give one premonition or prediction on you know, what we think uh, is something notable we'll see over the next six or 12 months. You know, what are your thoughts on, on where this is all heading? You want me to go to first? Go first, <laughs> I, Listen, I would say to you, um, the importance of this topic, the premonition is it's just going to become that much more important. I think Sasha hit it on the head when he said it's a license to operate. I also think it's almost becoming not even so it's almost, it's going to become a license of survival is what I really think. I would even take it one step beyond to that where companies and, and we as society are going to have to make some decisions because clearly <clears throat> you, you, you see things going on, you know, and, and, and really um I only see the topic of sustainability, how it's going to affect how people run businesses or even able to start businesses. It's going to just become more and more important. Um, again, one is a license, but two is a survival thing because really we're in a resource strapped world, you know, I would say. And, and if, if things aren't taken into consideration, whether it is reducing what you take out or take from the planet or your ability to take advantage of those renewable things to, 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 to run your business, you may find yourself in a situation where you can't run your business. Um, so it's not a question that someone might shut you down. It's a question like you just might not have access to some input that you need. So, so I would say, and people might think, you know, thanks Captain Obvious, but truly it's gonna be more and more important. This subject is not going away. That's what I call my husband a lot of times, Captain Obvious. <laughs> <laughs> it's an easy one to quote from the from the TV, but yeah. Yeah. All right, Sasha, what do you think? Well, what I think is is that this this is really people driven. And I, I wanted to say consumer driven, but it, that's not the right way to say it. It's really people driven. So of course, we're all consumers, right? We all go to the grocery store, we all buy different products and food and beverages, etc. Uh, but it, it, what's happening here and the need for, you know, this increased attention to sustainability and real action happening in sustainability is people driven. And we as consumers will make choices. We will make these decisions. So I agree with Jason. It's not only license to operate, license to survive. Uh, but the good news is that we as people, I mean, we're everywhere, right? At all levels of all of these organizations, at our customers, at, at, in Tetra Pak, in, at, at IFS, and in all of these companies, you know, we are uh, people that, uh, that care and people that start to care more and more and more. And, you know, I, for one, I mean, I want to leave a better planet for my daughter, right? So, so I do care. I do make choices when I can make these choices. And I think that's a great thing. So every small change counts. And if you're running business out there, um, you know, kind of tap into your people's potential. I strongly believe in, in kind of the power of teams, power of people. This is where the change is happening. Don't, don't wait for someone to come in, some smart consultant or vendor or whatever to tell you what to do. You need to figure out what to do 
and then look for the right partnerships um, in, in that area. So, so that's my thought on this. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, it's the power of people. And, and like you just said at the end, it's also the power of partnerships. So, I mean, Jason, you, you made a really good point earlier where, yes, in instances, this is a competitive differentiator, but it's also a moral imperative, right? So it can't be something where we're feeling like, oh, well, this is our, you know, secret sauce to sustainability. So we won't share this, right? I mean, we're all really should be invested in the bigger picture and the common goal of, you know, to your point, Sasha, leaving the world uh, in a, in a, you know, the best possible state for the next generation, right? And so, you know, the, I, the point you made earlier, Jason, about, you know, this is something where the benefits of community and collective knowledge and, you know, learning from what others are doing and, you know, tapping into whomever and wherever and whatever you can get some perspective from to drive the needle forward is, is super important. Um, so yeah, and this podcast is a good start. So, um, this is great. I really, really appreciate you both being here. Um, I think that, uh, we will need to, to revisit this conversation because I do think that, um, you know, it, as we've said, Captain Obvious is, uh, it will only become more and more important. And I think that, you know, as that continued focus plays out, there's going to be more and more lessons learned and best practices and what's next, you know, for us to be talking about. So thank you both for spending some time with me today. Pleasure. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. It's such a relevant and such an important topic. So, so thank you. Really appreciate being here. Absolutely. Yeah, inviting us. Yes. All right. You can find more by visiting us at futureoffieldservice.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn as well as Twitter at the future of FS. The future of field service podcast is published in partnership with IFS. You can learn more at IFS.com. As always, thank you for listening.